Let's read just the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 1. We read a little bit more last week, but we are going to work our way through this in a pace that some of you are now accustomed to, a pace that I like to say is whatever the Lord has for us without a hurry to get anywhere else because these are his eternal words. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And there's a period there in probably most of our Bibles, but in the Greek, uh, the sentence continues all the way to verse 14, and you just want to continue to read uh, because Paul is writing with that kind of urgency and passion, but we restrain ourselves at least for a few moments to consider uh, a broad theme that shapes the whole course of this letter. This letter that you hold in your hands. I hope you're holding it in some form, Uh, a letter contained within a much bigger letter from God to his people, but this letter from Paul to a church, whether it's in ink on a piece of paper or whether it's pixels on a screen that you are holding, this letter is perhaps one of the richest and most powerful documents ever written. That's certainly been said of this letter, the Ephesian book. It's life-shaping, world-changing, eternity-defining. Last week, we officially began this series. We might say finally began this series after quite an introduction, an introduction that lasted over a year and a half. And so if you're new with us, that would probably scare you, and I understand if you would want to run. But yet, we are people of anticipation and of hope, and so we believe that in his timing, now God has led us at this time to this purpose, to speak to us in a new way through old words, timeless words. We, t- we, we looked at kind of an overview of Paul's heart and purpose and passion in writing this letter to this church that he loved so deeply that was in ancient uh, Greece, today modern-day eastern Turkey, a church that he had spent three years ministering to. We looked at some of these major themes uh, that we even hear in these first six verses that he'll return to a number of these themes, grace, peace, holiness, blessing, heaven, uh, being chosen, predestined, adopted, and to ultimately purpose in life. Paul pours out his heart in these words, especially in these first three chapters of the letter. He is pouring out his heart, reminding the Ephesians who they are because of who God is and what he has done. He's reminding them of the heart of the gospel. And so I wanted to take this message to remind us of the heart of the gospel, which captures everything else we will see within this letter. And we highlighted the the riches and the glory and the power of God that we will see that is ours in Christ, major themes, 
but all captured within the one theme, the heart of the gospel. And what is the heart of the gospel? It is love. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more central to the message. Anywhere throughout Scripture is found is God's love. It is the forest, if you allow me to use that play on words. It is the forest. These other incredible themes that we'll study and see are the trees, tall, mighty, lasting, enduring, strong. Uh, But if we are to bask in their shade or tap them for their sweet nectar, we must realize they are growing within a broader forest, the forest of God's love. If we are to understand the riches and power of God's grace and his presence, we must see the forest of God's love and be reminded that we are in love. We need to rightly understand that in a culture that uh, uses that phrase and that term uh, in any number of ways. But Paul says right here in verse 4, as we heard read, in love. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, and in that language, as sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's love is the reason that we are here. Yes, the reason you're sitting on a turquoise pew inside of a little chapel on a little hill on the corner of 208th and Union Hill Road but I'm referring to something even more, as Paul is, the reason that we are here on this rock that is spinning in this universe, orbiting around this sun that we have been heralding and proclaiming as God's gift to us, especially in this season. This is the reason that we are here. Paul says, before the foundation of the world, God had his people in mind. You, sons, daughters, That's why he created the world, not the other way around. His family was not created to serve and take care of the earth. They're commissioned to do that. The earth was created for his family. In love, we have been chosen. In love even is the only way, right way to understand those themes. So stay tuned as we dig into uh, some pretty rich and sometimes controversial themes of God's election and predestination of his choosing and how that works in the mystery of people's responses to him and to his drawing. So stay tuned as we look forward, I think, to those themes. But first, we see the incredible love of God. According to his good pleasure is another way to translate that phrase, according to the purpose of his will. God delighted to create. Because God so loved, he created. He makes alive. Because God is love, he adopts as a father adopts. According to the purpose of his will, it's almost too rigid. According to his good pleasure, his delight. Because he is love, he makes alive Paul will go on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, and say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in sin, he made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace 
you have been saved. Because God is love, he saves. God's love is the reason for our life and our breath, right now and for all eternity. That's how incredible is the love story of God, the center and heart of the gospel. It's what Paul is proclaiming with this urgency and passion that he needs the church to be reminded of, to hear, to receive, and be reminded of again. We looked at his, his two prayers last week, one in chapter one and one in chapter three that truly reveal his heart as he's writing to them. He, express, he expresses to them the way he's been praying for them. And it's, ca- it's captured in Ephesians chapter three, 14 and following. Here the uh, importance, the centrality of God's love and their understanding of God's love for them. He says, for this reason, like for everything that I'm saying to you about the incredible nature of the gospel, of of who God is and what he's done and therefore who you are, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Everything comes from God the Father. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that it surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Paul wants them to know and us to know who we are because of who God is and what he's done. We are rich and powerful. Things that our world is longing for and striving to see fulfilled in any number of ways and pursuits. Paul is saying to this church and to us as we receive from the Holy Spirit these same words, that we are already rich and already powerful because we have a God and Father who is a creator and an adopter. He rescues, he redeems, he pursues, he adopts into his family. And in his family, we are one with the Son, the true heir, Jesus himself. That's what Paul is expounding on. We are in Christ. We are one with him in his inheritance We are richer than you could ever imagine or ever put into context because every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ already. Do you know that church is what Paul is saying? And you are powerful. There's more power available to you and through you than our world could ever imagine because the Holy Spirit indwells within us. Not power for your own glory or your own might or your own work or your own agenda, but power that can raise the dead to life again. The very connection that Paul makes in chapter one. The same power that is at work in you because of the Holy Spirit is the power that raised Christ out of the tomb. You are rich and you are powerful. We have not come to comprehend that. In some ways, we will always be coming it to comprehend that because of the depth of the love of God. And Paul reminds them in this prayer how this is even possible because you are rooted 
and grounded in love. And yet he prays that they would know love. So there's a little bit of a paradox here. Thanks, Paul. He was good at this. You are rooted and grounded in love. This is who God is and who you are. And so I pray that you would come to know this love. So how can you be rooted and grounded in this love and yet not know it? It's kind of like missing the forest for the trees or the proverbial fish that doesn't know it's actually living in water. God's love is so pervasive, so magnificent, so incredible that we will always be coming to know it, even as we are rooted and grounded in it. And Paul says, I pray that you would have strength to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Thank you, Paul. I pray that you would know it, but it surpasses knowledge. So there's just this circular longing, isn't it, and pursuit of God's love. And if we can come to grasp the bigness of it and the majesty of it, then it makes sense that he would speak this way. And he goes on, as if that wasn't enough, to say, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, The image I have is like him saying, believe that the entire ocean could fit into this thimble. Believe it. So these themes stretch us. God's love is incredible. But Paul knew there was nothing greater for the Ephesian church to know and to remember, to experience than the love of God and that it was possible to drift from it. See, Paul, this is years later since the time Paul was in Ephesus ministering to this church, seeing it built, seeing people come to hear of Jesus, to trust him, to follow him. He left that church in order to continue the mission and the ministry that God had called him to ultimately led to his arrest as he felt compelled to go back to Jerusalem and take a stand for the gospel, knowing that that was likely going to lead to his arrest. It wasn't popular. Uh, Romans had control in the whole empire, and he was even warned that, Paul, if you do this, you will be arrested, and it came to pass, and he said, I'm willing to die if what it takes is to proclaim him especially at the highest levels. He was in prison at this point, waiting a trial before Nero himself, which would ultimately lead to the end of his life. Paul gave his life for this. So at some point, though, in that imprisonment for Paul, a friend, perhaps Tychicus, fun name, uh, he mentions Tychicus later at the end of this letter, and he, that Tychicus would be the one to take this letter back to the church in Ephesus. So perhaps Tychicus was the one who came and proclaim to Paul what was going on in form of update. What's happening in the Ephesian church? Well, let me tell you. Something sparked Paul to write this letter. He heard a report, and he writes with this urgency and this passion, not around themes of uh, crisis in this church or division or even sinful behavior that needed to be corrected. Paul wrote that way in many of his letters to the various churches he had been a part of. But in this time, in this case, he writes with an unmatched urgency and passion around these incredible themes of the gospel and ultimately centering on the love of God. So what could he have heard that made him think this church has drifted? It's forgotten. It's become rigid. It's, you might say its love is growing cold. Paul saw the signs of this, and we know that this church ultimately never corrected that course. It continued to drift from the love of God. 
Because at the very end of our Bible, in the book Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus himself writes a letter written through the apostle John to the church in Ephesus. So we actually have another letter to the church in Ephesus. Much shorter, or at least the content that we have been given in Revelation is only a few verses long. But in Revelation 2, John writes this from Jesus to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write these words. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus gives high praise to this church. Praise that even we as a church, you know, a little pat on, your, pat on the back for faithfulness, for endurance, for standing firm on the truth, for not growing weary. But, did you know that was coming? Verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. For if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, unless you turn, unless you return. Ultimately, that church would fade and die. And so as strong as it began, planted by the Apostle Paul himself, built up in three years with many coming to know Christ, even, even coming to change some of the culture and the society the economy, we looked at that study when we walked through Acts, the impact that was happening. Luke writes that because of the Ephesian church, there wasn't a person in Asia who hadn't heard the gospel. Man, that church had influence, had leadership, had devotion, had passion. What happened? Somehow they began to drift Paul saw it, and so he writes this letter as a warning, as an encouragement, longing to be with them himself, but he can't, so he pours out his heart in this letter. Whether that slowed the drift, we don't know, but ultimately it comes years later. This, this, was, this letter from John, from Jesus through John, was likely a couple decades later. So the church continued, but at some point it came to a place where Jesus himself said, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You know, had Paul not been long dead when John recorded that vision, wrote that letter, and sent it to Ephesus, wouldn't this have broken his heart? This should break the heart of every pastor, of every follower of Jesus, of every church. Not just on behalf of this church in Ephesus that ultimately lays in ruins, figuratively and literally, but the recognition that if this is possible, for this kind of great church, impactful, culture-shaping church, who clearly received the love of God and knew his love and walked in it and yet drifted and died, then it should break our hearts for that potential within us. And not just that we should pray as a church, as Union Hill Church, Lord, Help us never lose the love, your love and love for one another and love for the lost in our community. Help us not drift. Help us return. Or even, Lord, have we 
drifted? Have we abandoned? These are good prayers. I'd say pray them. But we should pray also, Lord, show us where we have drifted. Show us where we have lost sight of your love, of who you are and what you've done. As if we would be arrogant to think that we are not able to drift like this Ephesian church. So Lord, show us, show us where we have lost our first love. You know, this is where we began this series. Not last week, but in the summer of 2017. God wanted us to walk through Acts, so we did that. But in the summer of 2017, we kind of labeled it the summer of love. Some of you were around for that. It was a 70-year anniversary, so another little play on words. But ultimately, we took, I think, nine weeks from some different angles, different facets of the love of God that we recognize And we had this Ephesian church kind of in the backdrop that that's possible for us too, to drift, to lose, to grow cold in the central truth of the whole message, the central heartbeat of the gospel. And so we prayed, I led us to pray three prayers. These will sound familiar to some of you. Lord, remind us of your love. Two, Lord, reveal anew your love for us. And three, Lord, lead us to repentance for how we've abandoned our first love. We prayed that throughout that summer, and actually that was gro- I was growing to think I would come right into Ephesians out of that series. And again, God redirected us in a good way to act. So there's the world's longest sermon series introduction. But in these not quite two years, I think God has prepared soil, has helped Roots grow. New shoots of life have come. And my prayer is now in the coming season that there would be a harvest. There would be fruit born through this work. That we would continue and maybe even renew those same three prayers. But that we would not lose sight of the centrality of the gospel message, of God's love and what he has done for us and ultimately who he is. That we cannot rightly grasp the riches and the power that Paul speaks of or any other theme throughout this letter if we don't first come to understand and know the love of God. Have we come to understand it? No, we have not. Just as Paul says, I pray that you would know it, but it surpasses knowledge, but that we would center it rightly in all that we do and all that we are. And so be reminded, church, because if this church could so easily drift and lose sight over years, of the love of God, then so can we. If we're going to receive Paul's indicatives and apply his imperatives, I mentioned that last week, the indicatives, the truth, what's what's indicative of the life of a follower of Jesus, of an adopted son and daughter into this family, what is true of you? We need to hear those. And if we're to apply the imperatives, which is the second half of his letter, so then, this is what it looks like. Live out your faith, your calling, your walk, And we need to have that order clearly, but if we're going to receive his indicatives and apply his imperatives, then it must be with a greater and growing and steadfast understanding of the love of God that we would step back and see the forest as we walk through the trees. 
we could literally go back to the beginning and trace this theme. And you know I'm tempted to do that, aren't you? <laughs> back to the garden, to the cross. And there are a couple reasons I'm not going to do that today. One, I've done that a few times. It's on record, and it's good, and we need that reminder because this theme runs through every page of Scripture, not just this little letter that's toward the back of the book. But also because we can go to one passage. It's recorded in a couple places in the Gospels, but one passage that proves the centrality of love, that there is nothing greater in all the world than love. First God's, and then inspired by his love, ours. And we know we should be cautious with superlatives. The worst thing you could ever do is be flippant with superlatives. <laughs> but in this case, we can have confidence because Jesus himself was confident in proclaiming an answer to this bold question. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see men and women come to Jesus with some, some deep questions and then some questions to challenge, to trap, to see who he really is. And as Jesus so wisely does, he often shapes and redirects to get at the heart of the questioner because he sees right through it. So he'll often ask a question in response. Well, who do you say I am? So what we, we do this with our kids all the time. So what do you think? Now, my daughter lost a tooth yesterday. So is the tooth fairy coming? What do you think? What do you believe? <laughs> we skirt that one just nicely, cleanly. I don't have to deceive and lie to my kid. I mean, when I bring the money later, I, maybe I'm joining in with the work of the enemy. But in this case, I redirect, I ask, I probe. What's in her heart? What is her belief? Ah, oh, yes, I believe. And then later she said, but I know it's really you. But then she writes a letter and wants us to draw a picture I've asked the tooth fairy to draw a picture of who she really is. Oh, anyway. <laughs> Just entering into the ministry of Jesus, redirecting questions like of a child. How often have we ourselves come to Jesus in prayer asking a question that ultimately is a trap or ultimately reveals our heart in a way that we're as if we're trying to hide it or could hide it from him. And he redirects or he re-questions or he probes. He asks us, but that's the relationship and it is beautiful. And we are but children uh, before a father or mere servants before a king. So if you read through the gospels, you'll see that. But in this case, with a question that was meant to trap, Jesus, what is the greatest, most important thing in all of the world is ultimately what was being asked. He asked in the frame of what's the greatest commandment in the law. We're going to trap Jesus in this. But instead of redirecting, instead of denying the premise of the question, instead of asking a question in return, he gave an answer. This is like a softball pitch for Jesus. I'm ready for that one. Because there is something that is greater than all things. There is a greatest commandment in all. By the way, I'm referring to Mark 12 here. It's also recorded in Matthew uh, 20, chapter 20, 22. Fact check me there, somewhere in one of those two. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes asked Jesus, it's 22. One of the scribes asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? There's the superlative. What's the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important, so it's like he was waiting for this, huh? The most important of all other things. You kind of know the answer by now, right? I'm just building this up. 
the most important of all things in all of life, what everything else hangs upon, is love. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is likely the summary of this interaction. I'm pretty sure that Jesus put into context the incredible love of God. He was always doing that, the love of the Father. But this is the answer. And that you would love others. This this order is essential, right? That you would love God, and the only way to love God, to express that love, is to love others whom he's created, whom are his children. Jesus answered it. He answered the longing of every heart, the question that every man, woman, and child who is able would ask. They might ask it in any number of ways or words or even not expressed, but yet it is the question that our world has always and forever asked. It's what we were made to ask. What is it all about? Why are we here? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? Where is fulfillment? Where is true life found? Is there more than just this? What is the most important thing? Just give me it. The movie City Slickers comes to mind for some reason. (laughs) This one thing. Okay, I digress. Even further. Jesus answered the superlative question with the superlative. The most important, nothing greater is love. I envy you if you are hearing this for the first time. Perhaps you have heard it many times, but you are hearing it for the first time. I still envy. I envy if it truly is the first time these words of Jesus are entering into your ears and resonating around into your mind. Well, I am thankful, Lord, I am thankful that these are familiar words to so many of us because of what that means because of who you are and what you've done in our life. Thank you. I heard them from childhood. And maybe some of you did as well. And I envy being a grown man to hear them for the first time because they are astonishing. And I pray, Lord, shock us with these words. Make it like we are hearing them for the first time that we maybe could come to understand the riches, the depth, the length, the height, the breadth of your love that surpasses knowledge. If we could only hear them for the first time. Paul will say in chapter five, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And some of us, frankly, spiritually, are sleeping and are dead. Awaken. Open your eyes and your ears and your heart because this is everything. It puts everything into context and shape. It's why you are here. It's why you are suffering. It's why our world is where it is. It's everything. The love of God. Do we grasp it? Do we know it? No, we don't. But our hope is the Holy Spirit could make us know it, could make us experience it. Help us, Lord. Now consider for a moment, perhaps this would help, this is now logical, we need the Spirit to make us know it, but consider what Jesus didn't say. What is, Jesus, what is the greatest, most important thing? What didn't he say? He did not say, trust God, obey God, pray continually, 
five times a day at least. Give to the poor generously. Live a good life. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Live a holy life. He didn't say any of those. Now hear me clearly, church. Those are all good things. He said them elsewhere. He said them at different times. Scripture proclaims them. But when given a question of the greatest, most important, number one on the list, he said love. Love. It's who God is. It's why you're here. It's why I've come, he said. You are loved. Come to love him fully. The weight of religion is cast off. Every other significant world religion throughout history has demanded behaviors of its adherents to follow, to become one, to receive these blessings, to be accepted. You must do. You must perform. You must act. Jesus said the opposite. You are loved. You are pursued. You are forgiven. You need to receive it. Then go live. Love and then do what you will, St. Augustine said. As if it could be that simple, but Jesus is getting at the heart of that. It's so simple and yet so deep. The heart and center of the gospel, the most important thing in all of life where meaning and purpose and eternal life are found is in this personal, intimate, living relationship with God the Father and with Jesus, his Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news. This is not just the good news, it's the great news, the incredible news, the heartbeat of the gospel. There's nothing you need to do to earn it. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to prompt, to encourage, to make God love you more. Do you need to hear it the other way? There's nothing you have done or could ever do to make him love you less. His love is infinite and eternal. He's created you. He knows exactly what he has created, and he longs for you. He has already proclaimed his love and his pursuit of you in infinite ways. And even if you have missed every one of them up to this point, do not miss this. He has so ordered, reordered, these are human words, directed, redirected, changed, created moments that would get you here into this little chapel on this little hill hearing from a relatively little man these incredibly big truths that he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. There's nothing you can do that would make him love you less. There's nothing you have done. He looks at you and he smiles because he sees you. You have eternal worth and eternal value. All that is his is yours. Every inheritance, it's why he created that you would know that. Know his love that surpasses knowledge. Church, we can't hear this enough. We can't be reminded of it enough. If it is the central point of the gospel, it is the central thing that the enemy lies against. 
and he did so from the garden, from the very beginning. Is God really good? Can you really trust him? Isn't he withholding from you? Maybe you should take control. Rephrase those, repackage those, however you want. He has one message, just like Jesus had one message. By the way, love wins. Let it win. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, God's love, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely even die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would lay down his life. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to make him withhold it. This is how much you are loved. In other words, while you were running, you and I, were running from God, rebelling against God, denying him, doubting him, dismissing him, ignoring him, God loved us pursued us, and Jesus died for us. We hadn't even begun to come to him. He took all of the initiative. He pursues. He redeems. He offers. And if this is true of who God is, then what is still true is even while we continue to deny him through word or deed, thought, attitude, Doubt him, distrust him, reject him, turn to any other thing in the world, any other source of riches, power, pleasure, control, security for fulfillment, for satisfaction. As we do all of those things, yet he pursues, yet he loves, yet he has forgiven because he is rich in mercy. And he loves us deeply. Whatever earthly love you have received, and some of you have received much, praise God. But some have not. The love you longed for, and maybe are still longing for, from a father, from a mother, from a normal family situation. By the way, that's not true. There's no normal whatever love you long for from a brother, from a sister, from a friend, from a spouse, it cannot fulfill, it cannot satisfy, whether you've received much or little, it was not meant to. Any earthly love was only meant to be a reflection and a reminder of the incredible love of God the Father who has loved you so deeply and pursued you so completely has adopted you into his family to have the full inheritance that he promises. Jesus, the king, the all-powerful king, has loved you so deeply and valued you so worthy that he laid down his life for you, whether you receive him or not. Church, we must receive this and be reminded of it. This was gonna be my introduction to this message as we jumped into these themes of election and predestination, and maybe in some ways it still is. But that can only be seen, that God so foreknew and loved and the mystery of his will, which we will wrestle with and hold in that paradox tension, but only can be seen 
in the context of his incredible love. So we dwell there today. Yes, we want application. And yes, Paul will give us application. If this is who you are because of who God is, then live like this, worthy of this calling you've received. Chapter five, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Yes, there's application. Yes, it comes in response to becoming to grapple and grasp the depth of the love of God. And if you're sitting there going, Ben, I get it. I get it already. You have not begun to get it. It doesn't leave us there. It leaves us humbled, hopeful, broken, excited, joy-filled, expressing in any number of ways the response that we are loved this deeply. It should lift anxiety and fear. It should give us context for pain and suffering. It gives us hope for tomorrow and peace for today. And so we respond. Let me read from this other author, the Apostle John, who writes on these very same themes. 1 John 4, verse 7 and following. Probably familiar to many, but oh, I envy if you're hearing these for the first time. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because anyone who does not love does not yet know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest to us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy that debt, to make payment, to reconcile us to God. That's how we know. This is the love that we begin to attempt to respond to today. If you're newer to our family, what we want to be about as people is to hear God's word and respond to it. Sometimes it leads us to action, to change, to repentance, to turn, maybe all right things. I'm calling us to hear the words of Jesus as if they were written to us when he wrote to the Ephesian church, repent. Return to the love you've had at first. That's both a corporate probably and an individual call. So as we come, as we respond, we come to the table, we come to the elements that really truly picture God's love for us in a tangible way. His body broken, his blood shed for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And we do this in remembrance like he told us because we need to remember that he, is, he has died once and for all, but he continues to love, pursue and forgive because he is rich in mercy. So as we come, we are seeking to return. Lord, speak to us, call us, draw us. By the way, there's elements there on those back two tables. We also respond through prayer. We pray through song. We pray maybe in your heart prayer. If you need prayer, please come forward, tap me, come sit on the front here. We pray for you even in these moments or find us afterward. Or if you're more comfortable filling out a card with a prayer request and just a name, you can put it in the boxes here. We respond through heart cries and through joining in with one another. And we respond through giving generously because God has given generously to us. It's an act of worship. We don't want to be assuming in that, but these boxes are here for you to engage in the work of God. 
I know many of you give in many places, in many ways. Praise the Lord. We have opportunities to make an impact, to make his love known. Let us be the church. Respond as you feel led. You are loved. And then as you walk out these doors, live in that love and make his love known as he gives you opportunity. I'll invite the team to come, and I'll read this passage from A.W. Tozer, the great Alliance pastor and theologian. He writes this about love. He says, If we would know God and for others' sake tell what we know, we must try to speak of his love. Now all Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. I thought I would end with that instead of begin with it. So I fall right in. I agree. And when we begin to try, and we must try, but we begin to start saying things like Paul, know this love, but it surpasses knowledge. Be filled with it to the full, but you're a mere thimble. We are coming to know him. He says, I can, do, I, I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme than a child could reach up and grasp a star. But still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to himself and to the star and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. So as I stretch my heart toward the high, shining love of God, someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. I wish A.W. is here preaching, and so do you. We are mere children. Let us learn to stretch out our hearts to God the Father, our Father, and embrace His love and mercy, for He is calling and is drawing There's so much more available to us, church. Let me pray these three prayers as we close, and then, team, you can lead us into prayer songs. Lord, remind us of your love. Lord, reveal anew your love to us. And Lord, lead us to repentance for how we've abandoned our first love. For your glory, Lord, and our joy. Amen.